Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. My name is Barney Hoskins. I'm sitting here as ever with my colleagues, Mark Prank. Well, not as ever, because sometimes Jasper isn't sitting here. <laughs> but I'm sitting here yeah. with my colleague, Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And my colleague, Jasper Mirison Bowie. Hello, Barney. <laughs> well, hello, guys. Lovely to be sitting here with you. We will be talking later about John Fogarty or Fogarty of Credence Clearwater Revival and everything else that's new on Roxback Pages this coming week. And we may even be talking about Céline Dion. <laughs> but first, we're going to talk about the great American writer Peter Guralnik, three interviews with whom we are making freely available on the RBP homepage this week. Mark, you're a fan of Peter Guralnik, I take it? Yeah, huge fan. Feel Like Going Home, was that his first book? Very first book. From then on, I pretty much read every word he read until I slightly ground to halt with those huge Elvis tomes. But just such a vivid writer about the history of American popular music. I mean, jazz, country, specifically country, soul and blues. Yes. And, uh, for example, in Feel Like Going Home, there's this marvellous chapter where he is a student journalist in, I, if he was at Cambridge. Boston, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if he went to Harvard or uh, he was from Boston. Absolutely. And Wolf has come to play his his college. And someone's reading an article Garand that had written about the Wolf before. And the article talks about his vulgarity and all, all of this sort of stuff. I'm telling you, sexiness. And all the students around are all cringing. You know, you can't talk about a black blues band like that. But... Wolf is nodding and beaming and sort of, you know... And then he goes on stage and he absolutely performs the most vulgar show anyone could imagine because he had to live up to his notices. <laughs> it's just such Wonderful. a good piece of writing. And then Sweet Soul Music... The Bible. Well, I mean, it, it, for our colleague Martin Collier and myself, in a soul band at the time, this led us to worship at the Dan Penn in particular, yeah. and that the, the white boys in the South who were part of the process of making some mm. of this great music. There's that fantastic chapter about Aretha in Muscle Shoals mm. and fame yeah. and the holy session falling to pieces. Yeah. It's just, and it's so well written. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, Gralnick is a great storyteller, a great yeah. historian, isn't he? Probably the greatest sort of historian of American roots music. Yeah, I mean, with one qualification, I think Tosh's is up there as well. Um, I mean, as a pure historian, yeah. oh, yes. really, because they... Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I would different. I would see them very differently. I mean, the, the, the reason that we're focusing on Peter this week is because a young French writer, Maud Bartomier, has published a book of interviews with the great American music writers. Yep. It's called Encore Plus de Bruit, which I think essentially translates <laughs> as even more noise. Um, <laughs> the interviews are published in French and English, so you've got the actual right. transcriptions of the interviews with not just Peter, but all the obvious big names, mm -hmm. so Grill Marcus, right. Richard Meltzer, Nick Toshis, the late Nick Toshis, Dave Marsh, Lenny Kay, etc. Yep. And they're really, really interesting, interesting. actually. In some ways, a project after our own heart. It, it, I found it incredibly helpful because it sort of answered questions that, that I, you know, mm. with my involvement with Roxback Pages, I had often wondered about. Yep. You know, there's a lot of incredible stuff in there, and I, and I hope perhaps we'll be able to use more of this Q&A material in the years to come. For anyone... Who, who's geeky enough to really care about this stuff. Maud's book is, is the first attempt to really understand what that 
that generation mm -hmm. of music writers, what happened in the 60s, yep. Crawdaddy, etc. The interview with Garnet was always slightly different from the others. He certainly never wrote for Cream or That's anything right. like that. And he, I mean, one of the things he says to Maud is he never, ever wrote anything on assignment. He has only ever written out of a kind of genuine evangelical yeah, desire. Yeah. And that's what comes across, I think. Well, I mean, we're sitting here, we've got the office copy of Lost Highway, Journeys and Arrivals of American Musicians. Yeah. And this, for many people, probably you and me, was, was a sort of real introduction to what these people, what these legendary figures yeah. were like, like Charlie Rich, yeah, yeah, yeah. Howlin' Wolf, Ernest Tubb, Waylon Jennings, the great uh, Bobby Blue Bland. I, I think the thing, particularly about Feel Like Going Home, is that actually it's not really historical. Mm. What he's doing is meeting these people and reporting on his experience of meeting them. So the thing is... He goes and hangs out with Charlie Rich in, in New York. Yeah. Charlie Rich's band are playing in New York, and he goes. And Charlie Rich, who loves jazz, decides they're, gonna, they're all going to go to, I forget which jazz yeah. club it is now, to watch some jazz. Mm. Of course, it's some real out there jazz that night, and poor old Charlie's scratching his head, and the band are all kind of rolling their eyes, you know. <laughs> and, and it's just a great piece of storytelling, mm. but very sensitive uh, yeah. towards Charlie Rich as a man. I mean, yeah. you know. You know uh, Charlie Rich's there, he's just probably drinking a little bit too much and his wife's there sort of like slightly wary, keeping a wary eye on him and this sort of stuff. Great storytelling. Lost Highway is more historical, mm. I, I, I'd say. But, it's, but again, it's, it's, it's really meaty profiles abs absolutely. Of, of people that we love and, and just some of the best and most kind of, I suppose, sort of romantic yeah. writing about yeah. American music. Yeah. And a stylist. Yeah. I think he's a really terrific stylist. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I understand what you say about the, you know, sort of finding those enormous Elvis toes <laughs> somewhat daunting. I have to say, I, I read both those yeah. massive volumes of biography, and I thought they were extraordinary. In fact, the third, so we're featuring three pieces, as I say, and the third of them is by Chris Campion, who yeah. was a podcast guest a few months ago, and he interviewed Peter about his Sam Phillips book, which mm -hmm. is the most recent Guralnik book, and he makes the point, I think, very well that reading those Elvis books is kind of like living Elvis's life <laughs> alongside him. The detail is so extraordinary. I mean, these are these are books that are years in the making. So you're with Elvis on the lav when he pegs it? Um, Thanks for lowering uh, my tone. Yeah, <laughs> I, I didn't put it quite as graphically as that, but um, yeah, you've right. got the gist of it. Were anyway. you right in thinking that Goralnik focused more on the people rather than the music when he writes about... I think that was his mission to try yeah. and convey. So, you know, he, he, he talks in, in a almost wonderfully ingenuous way about just how overawed he was by these figures, you know. He wanted, for him to be backstage at some club in Boston yeah. Yeah. With, with Bobby Blue Bland or Howlin' yeah, Wolf, yeah. he, just, he just wanted to kind of worship at their yeah. feet in a way so yeah. so you know is there something a little hagiographical about it i don't think so because he really is in love with these figures sure yeah. sure no yeah, oh, he's, no. he's also describing people who even it's not that they hadn't been written about before but they really hadn't been written about in any depth before no you pointed out that he actually got his start writing the english blues mags very interesting point that he makes to Maud in, in the interview is, is absolutely. He, he says that the way that so much of the most fundamental blues and a little later soul mm -hmm. research was done by people in England and Europe 
who yeah. were physically so far removed from it. Yeah. And this ties in with last week's guest, Mick, Mick Brown, Brown and, and the Soul Beat fancy. Yes, and very much. It, it is really interesting. Just as the Stones and other R&B bands here in the UK sort of shone a light on blues and rhythm and blues yes. that Americans weren't doing. So in parallel with that, the there writing. were writers like Pete Wingfield, yeah. Mick Brown, Bill Miller. Charlie Gillett. Charlie Gillett. A lot of the writers yep. that we have on RBP yes. who were writing about this music because Americans were neglecting yeah. it. Yeah, And so, you know, for American readers in particular, these books may have been the first real in depth, anything on yeah. country artists and blues artists and to some extent soul artists yeah. as well. Because the white, the American rock press, after a pretty good start in the late 60s and the very early 70s, became more and more white. Mm. Um, for example, Circus Magazine, which has some terrific writers. But you, know, you barely see a black face in it after about 1973. Mm. There's a real sort of... And, and I think that matches the way radio was segregating itself. The FM radio resulted in this absolute division. Mm, and, mm. and I'm afraid that's reflected very much in the writing about it. Mm. And then Gourlant comes along and is a massive corrective to that. He really is. He's a man kind of apart from, from everything else. He's a writer that just... He just occupies his, his own, I think, kind of solitary mm. space as a writer, as a biographer. You mentioned Charlie Rich earlier, and, and he says to Morbid, when I interviewed Charlie for the first time, there literally hadn't been anything written about him. There were no reference books to go on, and same thing with Dan Penn. Yeah. You know, so you had to just start from scratch yeah. and burrow deep into their yeah. lives. I mean, he introduced me to Dan Penn. I realised I've been listening to Dan Penn songs forever and loving them, but I had no idea who who this man was, yeah. and reading that book, and it's like, oh, this is where it came from. Yeah. These are the people who made it. I mean, I think part of, in a sense, the, the sort of conceit in it is that I think for a lot of writers, and I include myself in this, that mm. actually you sort of in a, would, would have loved to have been a songwriter, producer, arranger. You'd love to have been involved yeah. in making these musicians, yes. what they were. And the next best thing is to write about them. Yeah. I, I think that there's probably, a, a, for Peter, there was a kind of, like, almost surrogate attempt to, to do what, like, Jerry Wexler had yeah. done, and he mentions other, other white producers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's that whole thing. Mean, sweet Soul Music, in, in large part, is about a lot of the white the- people behind... Black Southern soul music. Well, that's right, and with the contradictions which go with which go go with that. I mean, I believe I can't remember rightly, but does he interview Jerry Wexler for that book? Absolutely, because I he think does. that's why I read the story about the 1969 radio convention, where that's when suddenly the schism appeared, where Wexler was threatened and lived by sort of black. Well, and Phil Walden as well. Yes, there was. Yeah, there was a lot of like blue-eyed devil yeah. talk, and one understands that. And 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 actually, even now, all these years later, I think. This has become problematic territory. Yes. I've encountered this myself, and I understand it. I'm absolutely sympathetic with it. It's that looking... It's it's othering mm-hmm. black music. Yes. Uh, and well, and I don't to know a certain extent, for a producer as well, producers have exploited oh, yes. black talent yeah. over and over and over yes. again and been able to market it in a way that a black person never would have been able to. Well, Atlantic to the did same that. Space. There's no doubt. There's no doubt about that. But then also, so did... 
black label owners and black producers. Yeah. You, you know, the fact is that the fact exploitation... that has been exploited all, exactly all the way down you know, the line. But, but I think it is yeah, black yeah, artists, absolutely, particularly black artists. Um, yeah, yeah. But, but anyway, it's it's, it's 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 interesting territory. It's slightly dangerous territory, but certainly these books just were for me a revelation. Just as I was really getting into this stuff, mm-hmm. you know, both in a practical sense of actually playing it. But as a, as a listener, they, yeah. they, they were fabulous. And, I mean, problematic or not, I think the thing about Guralnik is he, he returns the music to the essential point of it. And he says he says in a, an interview with Don Waller, the late Don Waller in 1986, when yeah. Sweet Soul music had come out, Don asks him, you know, why, why that 60 Soul still retains its appeal. He says, at its core, soul music is extremely visceral. Whether you're listening to James Brown singing Lost Someone or that marvellous live Solomon Burke album that came out on Rounder, it grabs you emotionally. And he's not interested in revivalism either. Interesting, he says, he says, I'd rather listen to Elvis Costello or Prince or Michael Jackson or Van Morrison, artists who are making soulful music with a contemporary edge. So, you know, I think think that's... Anyway, I mean, it sounds like his project was very much to uplift and shine lights on things that were not being. I, I think that's absolutely right. You know, shining lights is, is a very good way of putting it. Particularly so, the more obscure yeah. soul music. So it's not just Otis Redding, it's not just Aretha yeah, Franklin. Yeah. I mean, I really discovered, I suppose, I was properly introduced to James Carr, yes. who I regard as the greatest male yeah. Southern soul singer in that book. And, of course, Dan Penn wrote songs for the tragic James Carr. Yeah, yeah. So it was a labour of love. It really is the Bible of Southern yeah. soul. And the country music as well. This is he, he, yeah. he, you know, he treats them equally and the same. Uh, the, the, these are things which... You'd hear yeah. on the radio, but no-one wrote or talked about them. It's, you know? it, it, he talks about how mainstream, you know pop culture refused to acknowledge music made by, you know, poor people, as yeah. poor Americans, and refused to regard it as a legitimate mm-hmm. art form. And in a sense, what he and other writers are doing is really making the case that this is great yes. art, whether it's Hank Williams or Otis Redding. Yeah. The other thing about Peter's books is that they are, they're chock full of wonderful photographs. Yeah. he The, the, the care and attention that he gives to that side of his books is is remarkable. Yeah. I think some of Val Wilmer's pictures Absolutely. are in there. Yeah. So, you know, Sweet Soul Music, with these incredible pictures of, like, yeah. Dan Penn wearing amazing sort of <laughs> sunglasses and just looking like the sort of cool, speed-free nutcase <laughs> that he was. I mean, I'd say to anyone listening to this who's never yeah. read him is... Get feel like going home, which is this first, and then read his books chronologically. Yeah, I think oh, really? so. That, that really, really works. I think yeah. so. I absolutely agree. And I, I will confess, I haven't read the Sam Phillips, but I did read of all of us. I also read his, his extraordinary biography of Sam Cooke, Dream Boogie, which is which is wonderful right. too. I mean, that was like fifteen years in the making. Yeah. I do think they are remarkable pieces. Yeah. I came close to getting him to agree to have, let us have two or three pieces, and then and then he pulled back. <laughs> he like he likes to say no, but he's, he's a lovely man. Yeah. If ever he comes over to England, we must definitely get him as a guest on the podcast. He'd, that... he'd be such a good guest to have. Lord, I feel like going home. 
So do read those three pieces. Yeah. And also, if you feel so inclined, have a look at Maud Bartomier's book, Encore Plus de Bruit, Even More Noise, published by Edition Tristram earlier this year. Good also stuff. free on the homepage this week. We can continue this sort of French theme here. Um, <laughs> I know Jasper's very excited to be talking about <laughs> Céline Dion from The Sublime to the Ridiculous. Um, perhaps. Jasper's just covered his face with his hands. Right, so which, <laughs> why are we talking about Celine Dion? Well, because she releases a new album tomorrow. That's the first album in a number of years and certainly the first album since she lost her husband. She is arguably the biggest female pop star on the planet. And I am going to kind of, I'm going to sort of say something controversial. I think she's a genuinely great singer. Shoot me down. Laugh at me, I can handle it. I I find her singing to be sort of rather magnificent. Okay. In, in its way. I, I think it's okay. really schlocky. I get that. It's it's Vegas, it's schlock. The other thing that really endears to me is this. I remember interviewing the late Elliot Smith years ago, mm-hmm. and he had just had to perform at the, uh, the Oscars. Right. And he went backstage, and everyone like froze him out and ignored him and was just not very friendly, except for her. And she took him under her wing. This is late 90s and was incredibly sweet to him. That does, and said, that Don't does be sort of endear her to Indeed, me. Because he was terrified. I mean, this was just like an indie geek boy who was about to perform yeah, yeah. in front of millions of people on television and she could see he was shitting himself. So, okay. That, so, Linda, do we have... I also just love the fact that she, her first song was actually a Eurovision Song Contest entry yeah. for Switzerland. She's not Swiss. No, I've never understood that. I'm sure <laughs> she if won. You... Yeah, she won the Eurovision in 1988. I don't know if it was her first song, but but it yeah. was that was what that was put her on the, the map. Big, certainly for the anglophone sort of realm. I think right. she was pretty big in the francophone sort was of right? spaces okay. before. She's, she's, she's like a teen teen yeah. star in right. France. Right? Yes. So and she's of course released probably more French speaking albums than than English. This is her twelfth. English language album, I believe. It's called Courage. Um, there's a single I heard on Spotify called Imperfections, which I didn't think was bad, actually. But So we have three, two interviews and one live review by Joel Selvin of her playing in San Jose. And they just, they go some way to kind of explaining what her appeal is and what kind of a person mm-hmm. she is. I think she comes over rather well in interviews. She's, she doesn't take herself too seriously and she's quite witty. 1998, David Sinclair of Q actually ends up on her private plane after seeing her <laughs> perform in Orlando. He flies down to her Palm Beach house mm-hmm. in her Gulfstream 2 jet and her husband, who has now passed away, René Angelil, is also on the plane and blah, blah, blah. And he just sort of explains, you know, why her albums sell 25 million copies each. Yeah, yeah. And how, of course, My Heart Will Go On from the Titanic soundtrack. You know, was it's really one of the biggest power ballad records of all time. <laughs> Again, I think it's rather magnificent. I understand how everyone else, it makes I've never vomit. even seen Titanic, to be honest. Right. But the song makes me care. You don't have to see it. But yeah, I understand it makes 99% of people listening to this podcast gag. But the 1%... <laughs> Why are you looking at me then? I don't know. It's so saccharine and so... And it's also... I, I mean, the, the, musically, it's so drenched yeah. in reverbs and whatever. Yes. It's yeah. just like... 
Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I to be honest, done, I think we've done deal. Probably. Honestly. I don't have much. I to be honest, I've never really even listened to her no. music beyond the sort of massive hits that one hears probably more often than one would like to. Well, one thing I realised from what well, I learned from one of these interviews, I just thought worth mentioning before we move on, is that she did that vocal for My Heart Will Go On in one take. And when asked about that by, I think it's Sinclair, she says, singing is like when you kiss somebody for the first time or when you first make love. Um, <laughs> she goes, are you going to rehearse it all before you do it or are you just going to jump on him? <laughs> So, so she just jumped on My Heart Will Go On. Anyway, Celine Dion, if you're remotely interested, there's some interesting, a couple of interesting interviews. And as I say, Joel Selvin being sort of overpowered by her show. She, he says, you want cheese? She is a Velveeta volcano. <laughs> right, Mark, right. tell us about the week's new audio interview. Yeah, it's Creedence Clearwater Revival frontman's main songwriter, John Fogarty, as he himself pronounced his name in the interview. Interviewed by Adam Sweeting. We identified it as probably the summer of 97. Adam wasn't quite sure. Blue Moon Swamp had just mm. come out, which is his first album after Centerfield, I think. Uh, correct. And the first question is, why has it taken you so long to make another record? And instantly he goes into the whole mess of the end of Credence and the lawsuit with Zantz. We talked about in the podcast mm. a little while back. And he sounds really down about it. And he, 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 he does. It was just a huge part of his life. I think Absolutely. basically 15 years of his life were blurned. Consumed by this. Consumed by yeah, yeah. And his, his relationship with his brother Tom. We can listen to a clip, first of all. This is about the, the, the end of Credence, about the way in which the whole thing sort of became sour and sourer. Were relations bad within the band when you were still functioning, you know, playing? Yeah. Together, you know? Oh, yeah, the oh, last days of the band were... Yeah, I mean, it's amazing, really, that we were able to make uh, the records we did, and that's pretty much a testament to my resolve, my will to, to succeed in the music business, because the other guys were a lot of times distracted. Instead of being focused on the music, they were focused on how jealous they were of me getting to write the songs and sing the songs. And rather than seeing the success we were achieving, they were... Well, it eventually ended up... It was the sad, what do you call it, epitaph of the band when they finally had their way. And, we, you know, the last Credence record is pretty bad, really. <laughs> um, but it, was, it involved the other guys singing and playing. And, you know, this was what they wanted to do. Um, so, I, in other words, even even Proud Mary and all the records after it were made, you might say, under a cloud of turmoil that the uh, other three members, you know, they were always, like, hounding on me to try and... they were. We would walk through airports and people would come up and ask for my autograph and you'd hear three people behind me going, nah, 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 you know, all kinds of sarcastic remarks and stuff. They made life pretty tough for me. Soon. 
we've said this before in podcasts, there is no such thing as democratic bands. They, 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 they simply can't really exist. He was clearly the serious talent in the band. And yet these guys, and as a rhythm section, they were a pretty plodding and interesting... Pretty clunky and... I agree. But he had this loyalty to them. He says in the interview that he didn't want to sack members of the band, bring in new people, which would have improved the band, because he did feel this loyalty. And loyalty is repaid by just disgraceful behaviour towards him. We're going to play a clip at the end of the podcast, quite a long clip, where he talks about his relationship with his brother Tom and how when Zantz was suing him, Tom would, like, send him letters saying, Saul and I are going to win. Mm, He describes it as Patty Hearst syndrome. We'd call it Stockholm syndrome, Mm. where you're kept captive and you end up sort of siding with your captors. Um, And, you know, it is extraordinary. I mean, it's worth noting that one of his other brothers, Bob, ended up as his manager and looking and being involved in his affairs right through the 80s and 90s. Mm. So it's not just a family thing. It's, mm. to, it's a Tom thing, mm. you know. And really mm. interestingly, a few months ago, you had a piece from 1982 mm-hmm. that you talked about on the podcast. I think that was the episode with Tammy Faye. Yeah. And that was an interview with Tom. That's right. About... The band, yeah. and Tom is kind of going, well, you know, I used to be the lead singer yes. phase before we made it big, yeah. and then, you know, I was kind of pushed out, and now everyone just sees me as this rhythm guitarist. Yeah. So you can, knowing, kind of looking back in hindsight, you can yeah. already hear the resentment he, there. Absolutely. He's also the older brother. Tom is the older brother. So, so he seems his younger brother take over, more his, difficult. take over his band and yeah. become the star. I understand it's difficult, mm. but... For him to then side with Solzat, who had ripped Tom off as well as sure. everyone else in the band. It is, it's nuts. Isn't it, it? It, it really. Sure, can we talk about why? Yeah. Why we're talking about Queens? Because the sort of pretext really for this is that he's just released a live album called Fifty Year Trip, and mm. it's essentially. Credence songs, live at Red Rocks in Colorado. So it's all those great Credence mm-hmm. hits, plus a handful of his solo stuff. Sure, like, sure. Like sentiment. I mean, so I mean, I'd be interested in Mark, and what was your first awareness of Credence? And I mean, how, how do you remember uh, sort of uh, well, I hearing mean, them? In this country, yeah. in 69, around there, yeah. they had hits. Huge, you know. They I, were I, huge. I, I mean, they, they were. People big, forget how they, huge. You they know, were. they sold out the Albert Hall, packed the Albert yeah. Hall out. Wow. And I think '69. Could be wrong about that. They were a big band. Mm. It's very interesting because they were a Bay Area band, the other side of the Bay from San. They Francisco. were from El Cerrito. Yeah. They actually got signed to Fantasy in 1964, that early. When they were still the They became, no, they were renamed the Gollywogs by... The unfortunately uh, named Gollywogs. They were like a garage R&B band. Yeah, but but, but by Fantasy Records, they renamed the Gollywogs. And then... Not for a white R&B band. (laughs) And of course... for any band. No. 64, 65 was the beginning of the Haight-Ashbury scene, the the whole hippie scene. And... He talks in this interview very interestingly about as a ni- eight, nine-year-old listening to R&B stations, probably from Oakland, mm. I guess, yep. which is a black, very black town. That, that listened, he was listening to blues, he was listening to Muddy Waters, yep. that sort of stuff, as an eight, nine-year-old. Mm. He wasn't really listening to white mm. pop radio. Mm. And then Elvis came along, and he instantly, that made his hair stand up on the back of his neck. He's very interesting about that. But one of the things is that then when the San Francisco scene happened... They were sort of always slightly to one side of it. And we'll play a clip now where, mm. where he talks about the, where he came from meant that they could never be a sort of psychedelic yeah. band. Yeah, yeah. 
as to why we weren't like the Grateful Dead and all the other people from the Bay Area, I, the simple answer would be that I had grown up, you know, with the sort of mind, the rock and roll mindset of James Brown and Elvis and people that just, you know, get to their business and, and get out and do it. Yeah. But there's also another reason um, I, I had something else to offer. In other words, I looked at what they were doing, but I already had a developed theory. In other words, I was about to blossom as a creator in the world of rock and roll music, and what they did didn't appeal to me, because I already had my own. Right. And I, I think it's as simple as that. I had a very strong sense of my own creation, and that's what came out of me during the, or under the name of Creed's Clearwater Revival. Yeah, I think that's really, I mean, covering with he's so there or, or just after that in, in the complete interview, he says something about the, the name Creed's Clearwater Revival almost being like, that was what his fantasy was. Yes. It wasn't a kind of, but it was his fantasy of the South. Well, he, absolutely. He talks about, at some length, that everything he liked, I mean, he talks about how the first ten guys inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall yeah. of Fame were all Southern. Yeah. You know, and that all the music he loved had its roots in the South, whether it's Southern or not. Chicago Blues, for example, and Muddy Waters is from Mississippi. You know, we forget that to some extent. So, so basically everything he loved had a Southern root. So he had this sort of fancy vision of the South, of bios and swamps yeah. and the Mississippi and all of that sort of stuff, you know, the Mississippi River. And he, he just wrote songs about this sort of fancy of and the South. Great songs. And great I mean, songs. Great, I mean, you yeah. look at the list on this new live album, and my God, they are great songs. They're Born on the Bayou, Green River, you know, Who'll Stop the Rain, Up Around the Bend, yeah. Run Through the Jungle, yeah. you've already all, mentioned. All his, except for Susie Q, which yeah. is just about the only... Well, and I heard it through the great, that's the true. long version yeah. of that, which is which is slightly atypical. But, yeah. I mean, they were very anomalous yeah. in the San Francisco But no, you wrote scene. those songs without having been seen? No. Virtually without? not having so. been there. It was, a, it was a sort of fantasy. Yeah. I mean, but, I mean, what a great singer. I think Creedence, in a way, if anything, now slightly overlooked. Um, but I, I think the reason is partly because of what we were identified, that as a band, they weren't as, they just weren't a patch on, say, the band. Yeah. You know, the rhythm section was just a bit clumpy they and were... a bit dull. And you almost, you just sort of think, my God, those records would oh. sound better without yeah. Stu Cook and Doug Clifford. They're incredible songs. And Tom. Incredible, <laughs> incredible voice. Yeah. To me, is kind of like a fusion of kind of Little Richard and Solomon Burke, but one of the the greatest kind of, you could say, quote-unquote, black voices that yeah. a white guy's ever yeah, had. Yeah, yeah. And yet, so what's so weird about listening to this audio is how, just how straight he sounds. He sounds terribly, terribly sort of, like, like very straight, yeah, not yeah. remotely countercultural. Well, he, he talks about, again, this is about in relation to San Francisco at the time, that drugs scared him. He smoked some weed. Yeah. He talks that he fell into a bottle later quite seriously. But, you know, he read about people jumping off buildings on acid and all that sort of sure. stuff. So that was another gap between... Yeah, the... and there's that undertone as well to what he says in the clip that we just listened yeah, to, yeah. right? That it wasn't his scene. He doesn't, yeah. he's, not, 
he had his own project, and I think that didn't involve yeah. that sort of countercultural thing. Uh, uh, yeah. And, and the, I don't think he had any sort of social. He didn't socialise with those bands at all. He, you he know, played, played on bills with them. He, but, he did, but actually, not a huge amount. They weren't really a Fillmore band. When they got big, they'd play the Cow Palace. Sure. Which was the huge venue in southern southern San Francisco, where the likes of Jackie Wilson would sell out to ten thousand yeah. people. I mean, that's that was their sort of natural. Home. They and weren't there, a Bill Graham band. No, they weren't. I mean, and there were parallels with the band in the sense that they never grew their hair very that's long. That's right. Always wore just sort of lumberjack yeah. shirts, and were sort of not interested in the whole hate yeah. Ashbury like sort of jamming on acid sure, thing sure. at all. So he, he does talk a little bit about his solo career. He's asked about why on the, uh, his early solo albums he played everything himself. And yeah. he said it's because he couldn't stand being in a band and having a band around him anymore. I mean, again, the he reason why Centervolt is... prickly in he's, he's, well, I mean, if you've been through experience he'd been sure. through, I think I'd be prickly Although, too. Although, of course, we do have to... You know, we're only hearing yeah. his side that was of it. That was in it's my important. mind as I was listening to yeah. it. It's like, we're hearing his story yeah. and he's very clearly... He's, he's very... Confident the way he talks yes. about it all, yeah. and the way he feels about it all, he's worked yeah. through it. It feels the like reason this is why how he decided thought, it happened. The reason why I said what I said earlier about his brother being involved in his subsequent career is significant is it wasn't sure. a family thing. No, that Tom's issues were Tom's issues, mm. and the other two guys, I think, were just thick and stupid. Mm. If, if they'd all got together against Fancy Records, they'd have a much better chance of course succeeding. But Zantz obviously was a very canny guy. He knew how to sow discord in, in that band, even when they were when they when they were going. You know? Absolutely. Uh, anyway, so he talks later on about you know how happy he is at the moment, his home life, his kids, yeah. about how he's become what he reckons is a pretty good guitar player. That he worships James Burton as a guitar mm. player, but he at last feels that he's pretty good. His friendships with Keith Richards, some except with Bruce Springsteen. It's a really interesting interview, and um, we will play this. Long clip at the end, which is just riveting about him and his brother and Zance. Yeah, for what it's worth, I thought Centerfield was a pretty yeah, decent the, record. I mean, the old man down the road, yeah. whether it rips off his own song or not, <laughs> is, is a pretty yeah, feisty little record. I bought it when it came out. You I know. didn't think Blue Moon Swamp was good at all. I thought it was really phony. It sounded like someone who was emulating John Fogerty. How interesting. The very name is a little bit yeah, sort yeah. of suspect to me. I think he'd... Whereas you listen to, like, I don't know, Fortunate Son. Yeah, yeah. Or, or even, like, Sweet Hitch Hiker. I mean, the, those records are, 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 are fierce. Yeah. So, great. Well, we'll hear the last clip later. Later on. At the end. Well, what else have you got new for subscribers? Well, quite a lot. You eyed the clock slightly nervously. <laughs> we got Scylla Black in her own words, writing for Disc in March 64, about being on tour with Billy J. Kramer, Dakota's Gene Pitney, the Swing of Blue Jeans. She says, I'm not going to emulate her Scouse accent. That is beyond me. What is it like being, to be the only girl on a tour starring Billy J. Kramer, the Dakota's Gene Pitney, and the Swing of Blue Jeans? Marvellous. I wouldn't have it any other way. I'm spoiled like anything. All the boys spoil me. They think of me first. If they come across a transport calf that they think isn't suitable for a girl, even if they're starving, they'll pass on. <laughs> yeah. I love the idea of transport calves that have like, maybe a sign outside <laughs> saying suitable for well, girls. No, I think what it means is are there a load of bikers' motorbikes outside? Right. This is 1964. Transport calves have virtually disappeared, mm. but they were a massive phenomenon. And Barney, you and I, we grew up 
driving down the A1 or whatever it's maybe stopping. We grew the, up in transport, in transport cafes. cafes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. um, yeah. uh, uh, but they were places where... Jasper where... looked sceptical. <laughs> can't think why. But there, there were where the rockers hung out. And I think that's probably what it is. If they'd find a right. uh, transport cafe with a load of BSAs and trance parked outside, not a place to take silver. No, that's an know. interesting sociological uh, point. Uh, then. Um, just going to mention it because our, our guest, marvelous guest last week, Mick Brown, we're posting one of his very early pieces from Soul Beats. Yeah, because he brought in this issue, yeah. didn't he? Unless it's scanned. It's, it's summer '66, and it's a profile of Percy Sledge, who's just had his first hit with "When a Man Loves a Woman." And you know, he gets some of the details wrong. He didn't. He didn't realize that Percy had written the song, for example, partly because Percy's name wasn't on it. Mm. He'd handed over the songwriting credits, hadn't he, to a friend? He did in, a, in, a, in an act of insane magnanimity. I know, which he, <laughs> I, I suspect, regretted ever since. I think he did. Um, but it's it's a great. It's a really great. It's, it's a lovely little piece. Nice mm. profile. Okay, <laughs> an uncredited review of John Lennon and Yoko Ono's Two Virgins from Melody Maker in December 68. It says uncredited, but it has the, the jokey fingerprints of Chris Welch all over it. The actual album is basically experimental music, tape loops and mm. so on and so forth. And the reviewer says, the clangum vandler, or frequency shifter, results in... Is that a real word? No. I wrote that and yeah, I thought... It's, <laughs> a, word. Yeah, it's yeah. a German word, klangum vandler. Thank God we've and got And what does it that. mean? Frequency shifter. <laughs> no. okay. Actually, clang, clang, clang is like uh, tone or sound. Right. And umwandeln is the verb of transformation. Okay. Wow. Okay, this is good. So it's all frequency shift results in dynamic changes of frequency and voltage control analogous to white sound made up of an infinite number of audible frequencies distributed over the entire spectrum. By controlling the audible frequency of one oscillator with the output of another, at a subaudible frequency, one can synthesize the amplitude modulation and outphasing process. Hang on a second, Barney. And outphasing processes with time constants in milliseconds. And one imagines a great deal of that happening here. A hit. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, that's got Welch's fingerprints all over it. I, I think it's brilliant. I'll briefly mention Jeffrey Cannon's takedown of Led Zeppelin from The Guardian, January 70. Mm -hmm. Jeffrey does not like Led Zeppelin, you know. Like a lot of... More fool he! Well, you know, I think you know, we both rather agree on that. But like a lot of sort of serious critics didn't like Led Zeppelin at the time. He says, but he, Robert Plant, has no grace, no style as Jagger has as a performer. And Led Zeppelin are a tease, plastic, fantastic lovers. Ooh, catty, Jeffrey. Ooh. Sir, um... <laughs> but you're right, there was a real, there was a critical rejection oh, totally. of Zeppelin, particularly in this country. Yeah, well, also Rolling Stone, remember? Our friend John Mendelssohn. People just thought that they were heavy and crass, yeah. and it's only sometime later people started to hear just well, the dexterity in their playing, the nuance, stuff, and the shades, the shades. The shades I mean, the, our, our great friend John Mendelssohn. There is not a Mendo moment this week, but oh, his. But this is sort of it. This is Mendo it. His, his moment. Two, his reviews of the first two Led Zeppelin albums for Rolling Stones. 
were absolutely notorious, actually tore their albums to pieces, resulted in Led Zeppelin refusing to have anything to do with Rolling Stone magazine mm. thereafter. Mendo was responsible for the war between Zeppelin and the press, yeah. really, single-handedly. Yeah. Single-handedly. Yeah. John Impressive. Paul Jones told me that, it's effect, in, in words to that effect. Yeah. It was Mendelssohn's reviews that, that really made them put their guard up. Yeah. There you go, Mendo. <laughs> <laughs> the power of Mendo. In fact, I've gone slightly out of sequence because it's going back a year to the Detroit Free Ooh, Press in 1969. Oh. I'm, I apologise. Um, uh, it's George Harrison oh. discussing Abbey Road with Richie York. And it, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, he's very positive about this record, even though this is a time when the Beatles are actually on the verge of breaking up. But he alludes to that here. Here Comes the Sun, the first cut on side two, is the other song I wrote for the album. It's written on a very nice sunny day in Eric Clapton's garden. We'd been through real hell with business, and it was all very heavy. Being in Eric's garden felt like playing hooky from school. I found some sort of release, and the song just came. So being in Eric's garden rather than an octopus's garden. Absolutely. And also given the fact that Eric was about to run off with his wife. (laughs) Well, (laughs) quite. Absolutely. (laughs) Bloody hell. They remained friends despite that, didn't they? Was Patty married? Confused who was married to who? Yeah, she's married. She was married to George, wasn't she? Yeah, yeah. And she ran off with Eric. Um, Oh, my. Here comes the sun, doo-doo. here comes the sun, and I say it's all right. Moving forward to June 73, Ray, the marvellously named Ray Fox oh, coming. It's, such, it's such my favourite name of any of our writers. It's, it's, and it's actually a really fantastic review of Egan the Stooges' Raw Power, yeah. which is a great record. It's a great um, record. And he says, technically, raw power is a nightmare. Everything is lumped in and recorded together with each instrument doing its damnness to get in a note edgeways. But while others are carefully separating everything out, perfecting mixes and making beautiful, polite record records, Eager's got the excitement. Yes, raw power. The album doesn't actually start. It's like coming in in the, in the middle of something. This is the band being going hell for leather for a good five minutes before a recording began. They probably had. Which they probably had. I, Sounds I like, like shit. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> record. <laughs> Someone put it in the record. It's, I think he gets the album really, really I mean, really for well. years, Raw Power had this reputation of being sort of particularly diabolically mixed yeah. by David Bowie. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he got so much flack for it. But actually, to me, it's part of what makes Raw Power great. <laughs> I love it. It is a, it is a sort of nightmare yeah. sound. It's a mess. Didn't Iggy it's... do a remix quite recently? He did, which was much it? more kind of metallic and sort of powerful. Yeah. But not as but good. Not as good. No, it missed <laughs> the whole point. Now... Bill Holdship writing to the Michigan State News in 78 on disco, and he hates disco. Um, he actually uses the term disco sucks at the end of the piece. He says the music totally lacks emotion. It's mechanical, machine-like music for a generation of mechanical, machine-like robots. OK, boomer. Uh, as, far as, the, what, wait, <laughs> as far as disco's being black music goes, all I can say is don't make me laugh. This is why the Bee Gees are the top-selling disco act, right? If disco is black music, so were minstrel shows. Now, the thing about this is... I mean, I, we love disco, but I think we've got to put ourselves in Bill's shoes. He's not in New York. He's not in a place where real disco is being heard. He's, his only vision of disco is the Bee Gees. It's, it's Saturday, like, Night Saturday Night Fever. Yeah. And 
it's, it's very easy to characterise disco in mm. those terms. Oh, actually, I think those Bee Gees records, Bee Gees records are pretty damn pretty good. Damn good. <laughs> yeah. Come but, on, I mean. But, but it is easy to do that. You know, a white guy who's living in, who's going to university in Michigan, that would be how he'd perceive it. He'd probably have no, he'd have no idea about the loft or, you know, the, 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 the gay and black no. clubs in New York where um, real disco is being played, yeah. you know, no, which is basically a sort of funk but with a sort of bit of a four-on-the-floor group to mm. it, you know. Mm. He just wouldn't know. The snobbery in the phrase, a generation of mechanical machine-like <laughs> robots. Not like me, I so, listen to real music. Yeah, well, well you fun. know, that absolutely... But he does speak for a generation, not absolutely. just of sure. white boomers, but a, lo- a lot of black artists reviled disco yeah, as no, well. Yeah, that is a very fair you point. You know, because that they saw it as sort of usurping yes. what they were doing. And they, they, couldn't, they couldn't get arrested. I anymore. think what's interesting, this was written a year before the Comiskey Park... Disco Sucks Riot, where the, the burning of disco records mm. took place, which actually, around that time, as Sheik Nile Rogers often reports, is suddenly it was over. Mm. You know, as a popular music, disco died in the space of about a year. All the disco departments of the major labels closed and so on and so forth. What happened then is disco went back underground, places like the Paradise Garage and so on and so forth, and it became much blacker. Yeah. And so disco made 80, 81, 82, up to 80, up to, really up to the emergence of house music. Yeah. It's fabulous. Yeah. And possibly the best disco ever made. Yeah, sure. And the early stuff is fabulous. Because the early stuff wasn't disco. It was DJs playing records yeah. that people could dance to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there were still great disco records being made in 1978. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. For sure. Yeah, I yeah. mean, oh. you know, and to say that they lack all emotion is preposterous. Yeah. But he now. wouldn't have heard those records. No. He wouldn't not. have heard those records. They weren't chart records. No. They were big club records. Yeah. You know. Moving on. Seamlessly, about eight years later, Curtis Blow interviewed by Paul Sexton, Record Mirror, 1986, who actually comes over... I mean, Paul Sexton makes out his sort of braggadocio and so forth. In fact, he comes over as quite charming. He says, the real message now is just happiness, just fun. All the other rappers are being mean and cold, which is... You know, he, he kind of saw the writing on the wall that rap was going to get darker and darker in terms mm-hmm. of its content. He also... I love this. He says, I've always been a follower and worshipper of go-go music. I remember in August 81, we were doing a gig. It was my birthday. We had a hot band. We thought we were real hot. I tell you, those guys in Trouble Funk blew us away. They were something else, man. Mm. Which is, you know, we've talked about Go-Go a few times on this show. Musician 1988, Miles Copeland, IRS Records. I'm very interested in this. Fascinating figure. (laughs) Brother of Stuart Copeland of the police. Absolutely. Interestingly, the... IRS couldn't, could never seem to hang on to their acts. Their acts would have hits on IRS mm. and then Scarpa, because I think they found him a really difficult guy to deal with. I think that's right. Um, he says, make sure you write what a nasty son of a bitch I am. <laughs> nasty but fair. He says, we had problems because we're often dealing with net managers, artists who have a mistaken view of the world and make unreasonable demands. He mocks new age music if you're driving along the highway you're not going to put on a Wyndham Hill record because you'll fall asleep and end up hitting a telephone pole <laughs> um, um, fair, fair comment uh, yeah and also because he, he says he's the only guy you know he says they couldn't find anybody in the music community to say success is good capitalism and free enterprise are good I was the only freak around who would open his mouth and then he has a go at Little Stephen and the Sun City stuff. He says, so Little Stephen becomes a big star on the backs of the blacks of South Africa. 
The guy's a fucking cunt. Um, I, have great, I have great respect for it, for instance, for Paul Simon, who did a lot more for those black people than little Stephen. Oh, my. Oofy oh, my. Jeez, Mark. <laughs> you have to remember that the Copeman brothers, because there was another one, Ian Copeman, who ran the talent booking agency right? side of the, of the empire. They were the sons of, of um, like a director of the CIA. Oh, well, a major, yes, that's right, a major CIA so, guy. So, you know... They uh, were right-wing. That's why the, the, were, the, the companies were called IRS and uh, I think it was was FBI the name of the booking agency? <laughs> I can't remember. It was, it was all kind of very weird. Um, a couple of years later, a very interesting interview with... Jim Sullivan interview with Warren Zevon. There are no dull interviews there with no Warren Zevon, I have to say. This is 1990. He, he's in a fairly low spot. Mm. Life is a bit of a struggle. And he did this album, Transverse City, which mm. had died a death. When I told my mother about Transverse City and its fate, she said, well, it wasn't really funny, Warren. <laughs> <laughs> That's his mum. <laughs> I mean, most of his songs are, are, are quite funny. There's yeah. always something funny about a Warren Zevon yeah. song. Isn't that the one with R.E.M. playing on it? I, I think, yes, I think it, it might be. Oh, they, he, they were big fanboys. He also, at one point, was covering Raspberry Beret by Prince. He says, if Prince writes it and sings it, it's James Joyce. When I sing it, I feel like Andrew Dice Clay. Can I interject? Since yes. you mentioned Prince, I noticed that you had included a review from the 1999 yes. tour. Of course, that, that album is now just being reissued with extra tracks. Yeah. And I saw some of the dates on that. So it was it was interesting to see that review of Prince Time yes. and the late Vanity, of course, Vanity Six. And it's a great review of It's Prince. a great review, and it, it certainly accords with my memories of those shows. I just thought it was worth mentioning because, as many will know, Penguin Random House have just published this book. The, 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 it's a sort of scrapbook that was supposed to be yes. Prince's autobiography. Yeah. Of which, um, like, half of one chapter got written before he died. Yeah, there's, it's, it's, it's a strange publication yeah, yeah. to be honest with you but they've sent us a copy i'm glad to say and um i was actually pouring through it on the bus home the other night and it has got some incredible pictures in it and incredible handwritten stuff by prince i mean it's it's really worth looking yeah at. yeah yeah i mean i'm not just saying this because they sent us a free copy <laughs> if you are a prince obsessive i think it's it's worth having because it's a real there's pictures of you know because he went to LA as yeah, a yeah. kid to do that first album and there's pictures of the house in, in on Montcalm Avenue that, that Warner's rented for him and pictures of his living room and his bed and all these kind of stuff that's just <laughs> weird, how weird but just yeah. personal I, stuff I, got a, I, got a, I haven't seen I'll bring it back in and I mean I didn't <laughs> Steal it. I took it home for research purposes. It's called The Beautiful Ones, and it's an essential part of anybody's Prince yeah. collection. Sorry, um, I just uh, wanted yeah, to... Yeah, a couple of quick last ones. Um, Chaz Dewali for Vox 1992, writing about indie labels and indie labels' relationship with the majors, as either distributors or owners and so on and so forth. And it's very interesting because he, at this point in 1992 points to the way indie was ceasing to become actually independent labels and was becoming a genre of music. And he says, Joint ventures are nothing new, but that relationship is founded on the major's recent suggestion that independent charts should be genericised, either that a record's inclusion in the chart should be decided by its musical genre, as it does with heavy metal, country and western dance charts. And 
this is a really important point because we forget that Stock X and Waterman, SAW, that was an indie label. They had hit, they had hits in the... They were at the top of the indie charts yeah. in the NME. And I thought that was marvellous. Mm. You know, the, the whole point is the labels were independent. Yeah. Yeah. Daniel Miller of Mute Records, he's very strong about this. He says, who would decide what was an independent record and what wasn't? I don't believe there's such a thing as indie music, uh, mm. which is, you know... It was the last quote from him. It says, those people who claim to be indie-minded but go with a major are like people who claim to be socialists until they go into the ballot box where they vote conservative to pay less tax. Yeah, topical. Very, uh, very well. And, very, and lastly, in 1998, there's a marvellous piece where the splendid Stephen Wells introduces Cradle of Filth <sighs> to Jerry Hansen, the chairman of the Campaign for Courtesy, formerly known as the, the Polite Society. <laughs> <laughs> the whole idea is kind of like... Uh, uh, and at the end of the piece, he says, so what did you think of the lads, Jer? Were you shocked? Were you outraged? And, like, absolutely horrified? Apart from the chap who was deliberately trying to wind me up all the time, I thought they were basically decent chaps. <laughs> the, other, the other one, the chappy with the beard, he obviously felt he had to wind me up all the time, but I don't think he even really had his heart in it. Oh. I'm sure if we'd gone for a meal, then eventually they would have revealed themselves as decent lads. <laughs> <laughs> I love that, because... I, to me, I always have this idea that these extreme metal bands like Napalm, but they all seem to come out of Suffolk, which is which is And despite calling themselves names like Napalm Death oh. and Cradle of Filth, they're actually terribly nice young men. Um, I, I be, I, it makes some kind of sense yeah, yeah. To, to me. So it's great. I was I was looking at Cradle of Filth on the list, thinking. Yeah, surely he's going to mention that. Yeah, it's funny, it actually segues quite neatly to the first article that uh, I have okay. for this week, is, is dis- a review of Destroy All Monsters. And yes. I, read, I read this quote in the office, and you went, are you proofing a Cradle of Filth piece as well? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we can't all do Cradle the, the of Filth. The quote is, so too pig, whose feedback organ drone and broken trumpet accompanies an anti-Christian rant with stanzas like, come on, you farting pig, hurry up and intoxicate me with your garbage farts so I can lie and deceive the missions of the world. Amen. Pure cradle of filth. Pure cradle of filth. Pure cradle. (laughs) That is hysterical. I mean, a farting pig. (laughs) 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 You can probably do better than that if I was trying to offend someone. You farting pig, you. Right, what else have you got, Jasper? Yeah, what else have you got? A really interesting piece from next year, 2002. That was 2001 in The Wire, Edwin Pouncey. And this is 2002, Caroline Sullivan in The Guardian. And I'll, it's guess, about, I'll guess last week. I guess two no, weeks ago. Two weeks ago. No, two weeks ago. Sorry, two Three weeks ago. Three weeks ago? <laughs> Shush. Recently. <laughs> this is about Robbie Williams's new record deal with EMI, mm. and it's an £80 million deal, which was massive. Yes, nothing now. <laughs> no, but it, it was, it, that was, it made him the second richest man in pop after Michael Jackson, after an EMI press conference announced the deal with an understandably cheerful William shouting, I'm rich beyond my wildest dreams. <laughs> EMI's share price fell 1p. <laughs> <laughs> but, but what's really fascinating about this piece is a sort of investigation on the record industry at that time in 2002. And the point about this deal was that EMI will not only release Williams' next six CDs, it also gets a cut of his lucrative merchandising, yes. publishing and touring rights. 360-degree deal. In effect, it becomes a multi-interest entertainment business rather than a mere record label. Yeah. And that's fascinating because also Caroline speaks to... Tim Shepard, who's of the independent label Underground Sounds, mm-hmm. who made their stuff available for free on the internet, 
He says, the Robbie deal will be the basis of future company business models. They know that eventually most music will be available for free on the internet, so they're going to make money from peripherals like touring and merchandising. Yeah. It's a 360-degree deal, which became, became the norm, that actually bands on the road would often make the real money by selling their own merchandise. Suddenly, that money was going to the yeah. label as well. Yeah. Yeah. But I bet they lost their shirts on that deal, because Robbie Williams' record sales became just plumped. Yeah, I have no idea, yeah, rapidly. probably. I mean, obviously, they didn't lose their, all their shirts. That would, that deal would have been split into various increments. And yeah. We don't know how much he actually got. No. I mean, it's obviously a fat amount. rich beyond my wildest. But, I mean, not not long after that, EMI essentially when, collapsed. Yes, that's true. That's I right. mean, uh, Guy Hands at the helm, the, the thing was... Oh, that was... was essentially... The, the, the company was, was pretty much sort of destroyed, yes, I think. That, you know. Yeah. Um, Guy Hands. What's next, Jeff? What's next? Well, you added a, a piece about Afropunk that I thought was really nice, that was yes, Michael sir. A. Gonzalez in Ebony magazine in 2014. Mm-hmm. And he just says very nicely about Afropunk, unlike any other festivals I can think of, Afropunk is truly a beautiful mixture of millennials and elders exchanging ideas about music, fashion, and God knows what else. In the words of Sly Stone, the original Afropunker, it's truly a family affair. I Good just stuff. thought that was really nice. Good writer, Michael A. Gonzalez. He's a great writer. I love every time I find... He writes for The Wire as well, yeah. so I find some of his stuff sometimes. He's, his writing's Great. Fantastic. So this is really, it's a kind of overview of, you know, funk metal bands, black rock bands, isn't it? Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It, it mentions all of those. I mean, you actually added a, added a 24-7 Spies I did. review I as did. well. So yeah. we're, we're all Afropunk this week. We are. Especially I, you, Barney. <laughs> I just wanted to mention a new writer that we've taken on board, a new addition to the RBP family, Alan Light, who's a very well-regarded yep. American writer for, you know, Spend Rolling Stone, etc. And so we have added the first of many pieces that we'll be including by Alan, which is, of course, on Steely Dan. Where else could we start? It just happened to slot into the 2008 uh, <laughs> uh, perch. And he... So he's basically sent us a bunch of pieces that he wrote for msn.com before that online thing was shuttered but he's a great he's a very good writer and a very very eminent writer yeah. he's written books he's he's co-authored biographies by people so we're delighted to have yeah. alan on board it's a shame now. that i mean he was on staff at spin where he wrote so much that we can't really there's use stuff that, stuff that we can't use but there's plenty that we yeah. can with very big names so that's sort of you know that's my lot there's there's tons of other really interesting pieces going into the library this week and so that probably brings us to a close. Aside from Jasper telling you again all about our fabulous giveaways. Yes, here I am again. Here he is again. Hi, <laughs> With Jasper. With the giveaway. We are still running our giveaway. We are giving away five books, five copies of Steely Dan. Conveniently. Oh, my God. Oh, my word. Just Major just dudes. Major dudes. synchronicity. Incredible. You'd think someone planned it, except they hadn't. They really did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're not but that clever. We're giving away five copies of our Steely Dan book and 50-odd months, over 50 months of subscription to Rockstack Pages in various increments. Mm-hmm. So do go and enter. That's at rockstackpages.com forward slash giveaway by reviewing us on iTunes and subscribing on Spotify and all that good stuff. Yeah, you're more we likely really... to win if you say yeah. that the, the Rockstack Pages podcast is brilliant. <laughs> I hope so. 
it's, it's, well, have I broken some law there? Probably, yeah. No. <laughs> it's probably illegal. But no, you know, it's, if you leave a review, you're more likely to win, regardless of the review content. But we'd rather it was a you good review. You mean a really foul review? Yeah. Anyway. Well, if, you, if you write a really foul review, we'll send you a book about Grand Funk Railroad instead. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note... Uh, yeah, we're going to go out with this really interesting clip, John Fogarty, to, talking about his brother, his relationship with his brother and the way in which his relationship with his brother really entirely imploded during the Zance lawsuit period. Brothers in rock and roll, eh? There's been a few of them. Be very careful. <laughs> Great, thanks, Mark. Right, and then, so on that note... On that note, we'll bid you adieu, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Trying to Tom ended up being very Tom. I, I feel that the whole thing is very sad. In the end, you, you know that Saul Zance really cheated us, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, he really just cheated us and lied to us and and broke all his promises, especially in a financial uh, vein. Well, it wasn't. I'm not the only one. He did this to everybody in Credence. I mean, we just literally got screwed. But Tom ended up over the years evolving mentally in, in some sort of weird Patty Hearst uh, kind of syndrome. Well, I, I, I use that. The, I call it the Patty Hearst syndrome where they kidnap you, they steal your life away and lock you in a closet, and then eventually you end up joining your captors. And that's what <laughs> yeah, yeah. Tom did. He, in some trick of mental agility, he ended up befriending Saul against me. Whereas we were all in it together. We got screwed together by Saul's ants. We got cheated out of millions of dollars. And yet, by the end of his life, Tom was saying, Saul is my best friend. And he even wrote me nasty letters saying, uh, you know, the squabbles I've had with Saul. He would even say things like, Saul and I will win. And I'd read this. Saul and you will win against me, of course. You know, and I, I think in that context he was referring to the plagiarism trial I thought god isn't that sad my own brother takes the side of the guy who is suing me against myself it it was very unresolved very sad That was John Fogarty in conversation with Adam Sweeting in 1997, concluding this week's Rock's Back Pages podcast. The hosts were Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Muris and Bowie. For more information about our giveaway, running until November 22nd, please visit rocksbackpages.com forward slash giveaway. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com. <laughs>